0: Please turn with me in your Bible to the third to last book of the Old Testament, Haggai. We're going to be in Haggai chapters 1 and 2. Again, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the last books of the the Old Testament right before you get to Matthew. So find your way to Haggai chapter 1. Just a 20-second review I like to do at the beginning of these sermons because we're in a remote part of the Bible for, for many of us. People of Israel were exiled by Babylon because of their sin for about 70 years. God has brought a, brought a remnant back, and they're beginning to rebuild the temple, starting with the altar and then the foundation. But the people stop building the temple when they've only laid a foundation because they're afraid of the people of the land who are opposing them, the Samaritans. And so, the people stopped building for 16 years. And they've chosen instead to build nice houses for themselves and ignore God's house. And God raises up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to preach at this very moment in the year 520 BC. And I'm going to read for you last week's text and today's passage. So it's, a, it's relatively lengthy, but I want to keep the flow of what's happening fresh in our minds. So Haggai chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 2 verse 5. And again, this is the word of the Lord. Haggai chapter 1 verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for yourselves, for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house, while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little." And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Now, today's passage, verse 12. the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, I do ask that you would use your word that is inspired, God-breathed, and profitable even now, right now, this old book, often unread of Haggai, that You would use it, God, to stir us up to obedience in our lives today in the new covenant, that You would convict us of sin where appropriate, You would not let us feel false guilt, but, but genuine conviction of, of real sin, and that You would lead us to repentance where necessary, that You would lead us to a fresh enthusiasm for what You've called us to in our lives, Lord, what You have in front of us. pray we could love others and love You well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my uh, message today has three points. And again, I'll give those to you just to start out. If you want to write them down, it's just up to you. Uh, number one so the, the sermon is called Fear the Lord and Fear Not. Fear the Lord and Fear Not. And here are the three points that go in the order of today's passage. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 15 God's word stirs up God's people. God's word stirs up God's people. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Point number 2 is chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, God's people grow discouraged. God's people grow discouraged, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And finally, number 3, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, God's Word brings fresh comfort and assurance. God's Word brings fresh comfort and assurance. Alright, let's go ahead and begin with our first point here. God's Word stirs up God's people. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. I just want to say a couple of things I haven't mentioned about Haggai already. It is interesting about these prophets after the exile, they're, they're especially clear about the dates of when they received and gave words from the Lord. And I love this because you could just pinpoint it down to the very day when these things were happening. So if you want to jot this down, you don't have to jot this down, but if you're interested in these things, in the first verse of the first chapter. We're in uh, August 29th, 520 B.C. Isn't that amazing? You can pinpoint to the day. It's August 29th. In our modern calendar, if you were to go back in time, it's August 29th, 520 B.C. is the first word from the Lord. And the last several words from the Lord, starting in chapter 2, verse 10 to the end of the book, uh, all take place on the same day at the end of his ministry, which is December 18th, 520 B.C. So his ministry began August 29th. Of 520, and guess what? It ended less than four months later on December 18th, 520 BC. Haggai's active recorded ministry for the people of God lasted less than four months. Less than four months. I, I just want to say, as a point of, I'm going to make an application point just out of that fact because it's an amazing thing when you think about it. He has his own book in the Bible from three and a half months of ministry. That's amazing. And, and here it is, we're, we're talking about it thousands of years, two and a half thousand years later. Listen, it may be a short-term mission trip you go on. It might be a summer camp that you're involved with, perhaps when you're younger. It might just be a short period of time where The Lord, where the Lord has you somewhere. And it may just be for a few weeks and months, you can truly make a real difference in the life of people in a short time by God's grace. I don't want us to despise the day of small things. I don't want us to despise these brief moments. A single conversation you have with someone could change the direction of their life or your life. And so we need to think strategically, we need to think wisely, but let us not think that because the time is short that God cannot do much. Let us be encouraged that Haggai's brief ministry uh, is a profound and effective ministry that had a huge effect on God's people. Well, how did his ministry work exactly? God stirred up God's people with God's Word. Let's look here, you know, before I read this, let me say one more thing. Uh, I mentioned, I don't know, a couple months ago, that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are never clearly quoted a single time in the New Testament, neither is Esther, as far as we can tell. So, there's no clear quotation of Ezra where we've been over the last couple months, and those are the post-exile books, right, the books after the Babylonian exile. Here's something interesting though. There are post-exile prophets, right? Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And those prophets are quoted abundantly in the New Testament. So it's interesting, although the histories are not as often quoted, the prophets of the time, including Haggai, are quoted repeatedly in the New Testament. So let's see what they have to say to us today. Verse 12 again of chapter one. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, With all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord." Well, Let me just begin here by stating what's obvious, I think, in this room. Virtually all of us will agree with this, but it's worth saying even if it's obvious. Look at the end or the middle there of verse 12. It says, "...they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet." Those are the same thing you see, right? Haggai is speaking God's very words. They obeyed the voice of the Lord and how did they hear God's voice? Through Haggai the prophet. The very words that Haggai got straight from heaven through divine special revelation were the infallible speech, it was the infallible speech of the living God. And what Haggai has written for us here, as old as it is and as short as this book is, it is the very word of the living God. And it's not a word that expires in its relevancy. I, this is so important. People so often say, even in, sometimes in churches, I've even heard it from pastors just saying disparaging things about the Old Testament and saying it's not really for us. And I want to say, I understand that we're not in the old covenant anymore, but this is still God's living and breathing word for us today. We have to understand where we fit in terms of the Old Testament. We're not in the old covenant with Israel at this moment, that's true, but my goodness, it is no less relevant when understood in context and applied rightly to our lives today. Haggai's words are God's words. And I don't wanna say anything disparaging about what God has said, even if it's in the Old Testament, as it is sometimes said. So this is God's Word through Haggai, and let's see what effect it has. Now, before we read, if you know your Old Testament well, God has many faithful prophets who speak His Word. How many times, when they speak, do the people of Israel humble themselves and listen? Sadly, it is not nearly as common as we would hope. The text that Greg led us in in Isaiah, God looks for the humble and contrite one to revive their hearts when they are trembling and humble before God, desirous of his word. But Israel often failed in this way. But here is a moment where Israel does not fail. They listen to the voice of the Lord from Haggai. And although he's only been preaching for a matter of days, they receive it as the word of the Lord and they respond positively with fear of the Lord. Look at verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Let's see how this works. If If we put it together, here's what I see going on. Tell me what you think about this. For 16 years, the people we are told in Ezra feared the Samaritans and therefore did not build. Remember that? Ezra 4 verses 5 and 6. They feared the people of the land and therefore they stopped building. Right. So for 16 years, the fear of man has been more real to them than the fear of God. They're more afraid of offending people than they are of offending God. They're more desirous to please people than they are to please God. I mean, there's a thousand ways we can apply this to our lives any week of our life. To be Someone who fears man means you esteem their opinion of you so highly that it begins to thoughts and behavior. You, You fear man because you care greatly what they think and you live for human approval. That's what the people have been doing. They're afraid of the people. They fear them. They want the Samaritans to like them and not be their enemies, and so they don't touch the temple for 16 years. What happens? Haggai preaches, and remember, within 24 days... Of his ministry beginning the people begin to work what happened the spirit of god worked through the inspired word of god and the word of god entered the people's ears and it did not stop there it wasn't plucked up by the birds it wasn't choked by the thorns it came down deep into their hearts applied by the spirit and it stirred their spirit god's word went into their mind down into their heart and i would suggest it's been said many times the longest distance in the world is the gap between the mind and the heart. In this room, virtually all of us have knowledge about God and God's word and scripture. We know what we're supposed to do, don't we? We know what obedience looks like. We know we're not supposed to get irritated with our children, we know that. We we, we understand we're supposed to be kind and generous and gracious with our money and our time, we know that. We know we're supposed to probably contact and reach out to more people than we do. We know the right thing to do so often. What's the problem? It's the gap between what we know in our mind and our affections and our loves in our heart, and God's Spirit can bridge that gap. And when God does, it is amazing what happens. This humble man, Haggai, who we know so little about, preaches a convictional sermon. It's an in-your-face sermon, remember? You guys have your paneled houses while God's house is in shambles. What are you guys doing, right? Haggai is confronting sin. And the people could have said, get out of my face, Haggai. Who are you? Get out of here. You've been ministering for five days. We don't know who you are. Get out of here. No, they don't do that. The word of God comes with conviction. The spirit of God stirs their hearts. And what happens? Suddenly, they have a shift of fear. We were told that they feared the Samaritans. And now we're told in verse 12, at the end, the people feared Yahweh. They feared the Lord. There was a shift in their affections. The Word of God went through their mind, into their heart, and suddenly they start caring more about what God thinks than what other people think. And when that starts happening to you, you know the Spirit of God is working. Suddenly they are more zealous to please and honor the Lord than they are to pacify and please man, and God is doing this work through His Word. And part of the message is so simple. In Hebrew, it's just two words. In English, it's four words, I am with you. God says, Listen, guys, I know that my glory dwelling in the temple is not happening right now. We don't even have a temple. But I'm not absent from you. I am present by my spirit in your midst, and I will strengthen you and empower you for the work that is ahead. And the people are stirred up. Again, verse 14, I won't read all the long names, but look at 14 again. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And look at that, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Again, I didn't pick this book because of the sovereignty of God, but you can't escape the sovereignty of God in the Bible. We're doing Sunday school series on the sovereignty of God, and here it is again. I, can't, I, I mean, is Haggai the place you were going to go to find the sovereignty of God? Well, here it is. Why did the people work? This is a perfect picture of God's sovereignty, which is always effective in what he calls people to do, and human responsibility. Do you see them both here? God stirred the spirit of the leaders and the spirit of the remnant, and guess what? They went to work. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility in the same verse. Why did they work? Because God stirred up their spirits. And why did God stir up their spirits? So that they would get to work. These two things go hand in hand. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for, to stop there, you know this verse, but so this is your responsibility. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There should be a fear that God is at work in you, a, a, a reverence that God is at work in your life. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You do that, you work it out for, because God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you've got a responsibility, which is to use your will to work out your salvation. That is commanded in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation, exert your will, use your decision-making abilities and do what you're supposed to do, do the right thing. And then what does Paul say? Let me not think that it ultimately rests on you for God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the very willingness to obey Jesus is a gift of Jesus. And that's how it works. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are together and they are ignited by the word of God. Let's move here to point number two. God's people grow discouraged. Chapter two, verses one through three. God's people grow discouraged. Now, you might not see it right on the surface of the text, but I really think that's what's happening. Look with me at the first three verses. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. I'm going to skip some of the names here. Speak now to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to all the remnant of the people and say, verse three, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong. Do you see where I'm getting discouragement from? Doesn't it remind you of earlier in Ezra when they built the altar? Remember, they bring out the band and they start to party and celebrate. And remember what happens? The people who are older, who had seen Solomon's temple, what do they do? They start to loudly lament and weep because they know the new temple is gonna be nothing compared to Solomon's temple, right? That's exactly what's happening again here, isn't it? We fast forwarded 16 years, but are they having the same issue? Yes, here's what I think is happening. According to verse one, it's now October 17th, 520 BC, again, that's the 21st day of the seventh month. So what, what's happened is we've, we've gone now about one month into the future. I think I just lost everybody. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me say this differently. Okay, so where we were just now was we were in August, right? And now we jump ahead now, we, we jump ahead a little bit further to uh, September 21st at the end of verse 15, and then we get to uh, October 17th. So here's what's happening. We've jumped ahead just a short amount of time. Right at this point, it's about a month ahead of where we just were. A month, I think it's 27 days. Not very long, we've jumped ahead. You know what's already happening? The excitement from 27 days ago, God is with us. God's gonna help us. We're gonna do it, let's do the work. They've started to get back together. They're working on the foundation again. They're, starting to get, they're gonna start getting stones together soon. They're, they're starting to do work. 27 days into the work progress and guess what happens? This happens to all of us. Reality starts to set in, right? You've had this experience with a thousand things in your life, haven't you? You have some ambitious plan. I'm going to do this thing, maybe for the Lord, some some great thing. And you start into it, and the first beginning of it feels so exciting. And then after not a very long period of time, weariness kicks in, disappointment shows up. Suddenly, your hopes look like they're being dashed, and the people start to realize all over again, this house is frankly pathetic compared to Solomon's. Even if we work our tails off for the next four or five years, it's never gonna look like anything of what we saw 66 years earlier when Solomon's temple was still standing and the people grow discouraged and disillusioned and disappointed. And you say, what What can we learn from this? I find this greatly encouraging because these people are a lot like me, aren't they? And here's what I'm seeing. The people after just 27 days of work are already growing disappointed and what do they need? They need another word from the Lord to get them back on the job all over again. This is why God commands us to gather weekly, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. This is why we need to hear God's word week in and week out. This is why we need to get together and study God's word uh, with others in this church. Why we need to talk about it, encourage each other in their walks, why? Because we grow faint-hearted very quickly. Think about it. Think back to last Sunday. Maybe even last Sunday there was a moment in the service, maybe during a song, where you just felt uh, the the, the love of the Lord, the nearness of the Lord, and maybe there was a resolve in your heart to fight a particular sin or habit in your life and you were going to make a difference this week. And then as you look back over the last seven days, do you see sins that you committed in attitude or word or action? or in your imagination, just think of the last seven days. Things that you were like, okay, last week, I'm going to fight against this, and then what? We slip and fall into similar patterns, similar struggles, and we need to get back up on our feet again. We need to be reminded by God over and over again that He is with us and that He will strengthen us and that He is going to help us. I can remember when we started this church seven and a half years ago, Uh, I won't go into specifics here; it's not the point. But just I want to tell you just one little sample here. So I came from a ministry that was numerically quite large at the time, and and I was on a teaching team with a with a group of other people. And we came out of that, and we we, this church started with a number of other uh, people here. Some of you came with us, my wife and I, from our previous church. And when we came here, uh, the first six months or so, I went through a period of tremendous discouragement. I left a numerically large ministry. We came here, and every Sunday for the first, I don't know how long, the church shrank. That's what you want when you plant a church, isn't it? The, the first Sunday, we had a large group. The second Sunday, we had about 40 less people. Next Sunday, we had about 30 less people. The next Sunday, we had about 10 or 20 less people. And then there was a Sunday, we had like 46 people, and I thought, when is this gonna stop? We're gonna have no one left in this room. So I remember these early months of the church. This is, I mean, I can relate so clearly to this, what these people are talking about. You start something new, And you go into it and you're so excited and thrilled. We're starting a church and the Lord seems to be providentially orchestrating things. And man, we can't wait to see what the Lord's gonna do. And what did the Lord do? The Lord shrank our church for several months. (laughs) And you thought, what is happening here? And I went through this time of of real, I I would call it depression. I would call it, I mean, it was sin in my own heart. The Lord was, I think, disciplining me and exposing sin in my heart. I think that a lot of my priorities were off and God was reprioritizing things. But I can identify with starting off with enthusiasm and six months in going, is this place, you know, are we still gonna be around in a year? This, This is not looking good. We were headed in a bad direction, it felt like. And I went through a time of deep discouragement. I would even say depression for a period of months. And the Lord brought me through that. And guess what the Lord exposed in me? He exposed all kinds of idols connected to ministry and church that I didn't know I was struggling with. Thank you very much. I thought I was doing okay. And the Lord kicked up the dirt with this trial, and He showed me that I was, you know, what are you really doing this for? And what are your motives? And the Lord showed idolatry in my heart that the Lord had to lead me to repent of. And I think I'm still in process on these things as as we grow. But I understand what it's like to start with enthusiasm and to hit a moment of severe disillusionment and discouragement early on, and to want to hear God say, I'm here to still strengthen you. Don't be discouraged. Pre- uh, move forward in the work that is there in front of you. I mean, th- this could be, for all of us, it could be looking back at a previous stage of life, or future perhaps, but maybe it's looking back, saying, man, I loved it in life when this was happening. Ministry was seemed more fruitful, maybe you had your kids in the home and you thought, man, I miss my kids being in the home. Or maybe your kids are in the home and you go, man, uh, it wouldn't be bad. Might, the opposite might not be bad sometimes to have a little time off here. But whatever it may be, maybe you're retired right now and you look back with fond memories on your job, or maybe you're like, I'm glad it's over. But you look back perhaps on a previous stage of life and you go, man, I, I just wish I was back there. the The grass was so much greener back there. And now Things are more challenging, they're less enjoyable, there's more difficulties, there seems to be less fruit and less whatever it may be. Here's the call. Listen, God doesn't, and this is amazing to me, God doesn't deny the fact that the temple that they're currently working on is small compared to Solomon's. It's right there, verse 3. Look at it again. Chapter 2, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? God is granting that, yes, this, right now the temple is very small compared to Solomon's. God is agreeing with that, right, through Haggai. But he still says, don't give up on the work. Keep working at what is in front of you. So it may actually be true that the work in front of you right now is less enjoyable and that you see less fruit than you saw 10, 20, 30 years ago. That does not mean God is not at work right here and right now. Whatever God has in front of you to love others and to minister to others and to serve others, even if it seems lesser than a previous time in your life or perhaps lesser than you might think a future time in your life, know that the Lord is at work right here. The Lord is at work right now and not a cup of cold water given in the name of Jesus will lose its reward. I guess i just say one more thing about that. It might be Jealousy. Right? So the grass is greener in this other person's life rather than my own. And maybe you're jealous. What I'm doing seems so small, but what this other person I know is doing seems so much better. I, I want more of what that person has, whatever it may be. And, and I always think of John 21. It's, I love this text. It's the resurrection. Remember they eat breakfast with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee after he catches, they catch the fish, throw the net on the other side of the boat. They, they eat the fish, Jesus asked Peter three times, if you love me more than the other disciples. Jesus said, Peter says, you're calling me on the three denials, aren't you? And he says, yes, okay. So Peter grieves and then they get back up and they walk down the beach and John is there, remember? And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, the day is coming when you will be old and people will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And he told Peter by what means through death, he would glorify God. So he told Peter, you're gonna be martyred for your faith when you're old. And Peter hears that. How would you respond to finding out you're gonna be brutally murdered for the faith? Like Jesus tells him that. Oh, wow, could be, you know, crucified upside down is what church history says, could be right. And Peter hears that, what does he say? He says, Lord, what about John? What's gonna to happen to John? Cause I'm gonna be brutally killed. What about, what's gonna to happen to old John over here, the beloved disciple? And Jesus' response is amazing. I love this. Jesus says, let me get the words right. If it is my will that he, John, remain until I come, like if he stays alive until the second coming, Here it is. You ready? What is that to you? You follow me. I love that verse. So Peter, my plan is for you to be martyred. That's not going to be my plan for John. We don't think John was martyred. From church history, he died as an old man. So listen, Peter, if my will for your life is martyrdom at an old age, and my will for John is that he lives a long old life, what difference does that make to you, Peter? You follow me. So I want to say, if you are struggling with jealousy, not just with your past, but with someone else's life, you're going, I wish I had their life, not my life. If that's where you're at, Jesus would say to you with love, but with some intensity, he would say, what what I'm doing in another person's life, what difference does that make to you? That is of no consequence to you. Your responsibility, wherever you are in life, is to follow me right where you are, and I will be with you in the midst of that. All right, let's move to point number three. This is uh, verses 4 and 5. God's Word brings fresh comfort and assurance. God's Word brings fresh comfort and assurance. Let me read verses 4 and 5. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshaddak the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Now, if you look on the screen behind me here, you'll, you'll see he calls the Lord the Lord of hosts. This is from the ESV Study Bible. I just took a picture of the, of the page. I didn't know what else to do. So if you look at this, the chart actually goes way further down in the, in the Bible there. And this is this fascinating little chart. I would never ever have thought of this, but just I thought it was worth noting. This right here is a chart telling you How frequently the title Lord of Hosts appears in a book of the Bible, uh, in proximity to the word count, does that make sense? In proximity to the number of verses, I should say, in the book of the Bible, what you'll find is Lord of Hosts is a pretty rare title for God for most of the Old Testament. If you're wondering what it's literally Yahweh of armies, hosts are troops, so Yahweh of armies, which is probably referring to angelic armies, so Yahweh of armies means is what Lord of Hosts means. Now this. I never knew. It's fascinating. You see, it appears in some of the prophets, Isaiah, 4.7% of the verses uh, per per title, it it appears. Amos, 6.1%. But look at the top three. Far and away, the most common time the title Lord of Hosts appears in the whole Old Testament, it appears where? In the three post-exile prophets, the ones we're studying. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Far and away. In fact, in Malachi, it appears 43.6% of the time. It's it's the most common title that Malachi uses, along with Haggai and Zechariah. They keep calling God Yahweh of armies, Lord of hosts, over and over and over. Why are the three post-exile prophets constantly calling God Yahweh of hosts? You know the answer. I mean, you could probably figure it out now that I've shown you this chart. The answer is what? The people have never looked more small and insignificant than they look right now. 50,000 tiny little group of people back home, no political power, no political freedom. Persia is in total control over them. The Samaritans wanna get them in huge trouble. They're under threat from the Samaritans. They could be physically, bodily harmed or killed. And guess what God says? God says, don't be discouraged, I'm with you. And who am I? I'm the God of angelic armies. See Israel, you may not have an army right now, you've got no troops, you've got no militia, you have got nothing, right? You got nobody to defend yourselves. But I am the God of angelic armies. I'm the Lord of hosts. It's kind of like when Elisha, remember, takes his servant and they're about to be captured. He says, look, look, look up on the mountains. And what does he see? The mountains are covered with angelic armies, right? The armies of heaven are there on the mountains. And Elisha says, we are gonna be just fine because God's armies are on our side. It's just two people, but we got 10,000 troops from the angelic hosts, right? So here's what God is telling us. Even though you feel small and insignificant, I am Yahweh of armies. I am sovereign and in control. You don't need human strength. You have divine strength and protection. I am the Lord of hosts. That's one aspect of the comfort and assurance that God's word uh, gives to the people. Let me turn you to a text. Hold your spot. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Hold your spot there in Haggai. Luke chapter 12. As you're turning there, you may remember, the people feared the Lord, and at the end of today's text, God commanded them, fear not. Now you see this, they feared the Lord, and therefore they had nothing of which to be afraid. If we fear the Lord, we have nothing else to be afraid of. And that's illustrated by Jesus so beautifully in Luke 12, verses four through seven. I love this, fear and fear not. Look at this, Luke 4:7. I tell you, my friends, Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not you are of more value than many sparrows and do you see the logic don't fear man or samaritans or whoever don't fear man fear god and when you fear god you are placing your life into god's hands the lord of hosts you're placing your life into his hands And here's what you know When you're in god's hands and you're fearing god and not fearing anything else you have nothing to fear because it says here it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom it says here not one hair of your head is going to be taken from you because you're of more value than many sparrows god is going to care for his people so if we fear him we have nothing of which to be afraid All right, turn with me, this is the last text I want you to turn to, turn with me to Zechariah, which is right next to Haggai, the next book after Haggai, turn to Zechariah chapter 3. One last point of application before we get to Zechariah 3 is this, essentially Haggai is saying, will we walk by faith or by sight? Will we follow God's word and walk by faith and trust him? Or will we see what our eyes see and live by fear of what our eyes tell us? All right, Zechariah 3. Now, we're, we're coming to the Lord's table, and I wanted to find a way to connect Haggai to the Lord's Supper. And this is actually a beautiful text to do so. So give me a few, I want to take a few extra minutes on the sermon, so stick with me here, a few more minutes, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. But let me just set the scene here for a moment. Zechariah is prophesying just a few months after Haggai. Okay, this is just a few months after Haggai's ministry has ceased. Not long afterwards. And guess what we still have the same two leaders joshua and zerubbabel all right we're used to their names but here's what's amazing joshua was who remember by now he was the high priest and remember the high priest more than anyone else on earth represents the people before god and god before the people and who's the one who goes into the holy of holies once a year with the blood of atonement it's the high priest right he represents god to the people now listen when the high priest is supposed to go in before the lord There's a big ritual that they do. They're supposed to take ritual baths for cleansing to make sure there's no ritual impurity. They dress in perfect white vestments. They have all the high priest's perfect clothes and the robe, uh, the the, the part on the head and the, the turban on the head and all the different parts that they're supposed to wear. And they are to be spotless because they're to represent the people before God and the people want a spotless representative. And as the people return from exile, here's what they know. Is there sin that's haunting these people in their past and a little bit in their present? These people can't keep it straight for very long. And their sin, and their sin keeps cropping up, prone to wander. And this powerful scene takes place. Look at Zechariah 3.1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. That represents God, the angel of the Lord. And who? Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Stop there. Do you see? Satan's accusing Joshua, and the Lord defends the whole city of Jerusalem because Joshua is representing Jerusalem. You see that? And guess what? He calls him a brand picked from the fire. That's referring to exile. Israel was like a firebrand putting the fire and they're about to be burned up in exile, just, just destroyed. The nation would be no more. And what did God do? He reached into exile, grabbed the partly burning brand and pulled it out and brought it back to the homeland. They're a brand pulled from the fire. Verse three, now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. The word here involves excrement. So the high priest is standing before the Lord and he's covered in the sins of Israel, and they are defiled. Like uh, in Sunday school, uh, your most most righteous acts are a filthy rag. He's wearing high priest robes covered in excrement. They're covered in filth. It's disgusting. This is despicable. It's dishonoring to God, and all the people's sin is present before God. This is a disaster, and Satan is ready to accuse them and say, God, they deserve condemnation for their sin. Verse 4, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him and to him he said behold i have taken your iniquity away from you and i will clothe you with pure vestments and i said let them put a clean turban on his head so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the lord was standing by and the angel of the lord solemnly assured joshua thus says the lord of hosts if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Look at verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends, the other priests who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. You see that? The priesthood is a sign. It's a signifier of something in the future. Look at the end of the verse. The men who are a sign, behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Do you see that? My servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. This has got to be one of the most beautiful Old Testament pictures of the gospel in all the Bible. Just close with this. As we go to the Lord's table, the high priest is standing and he's covered in real filth from real sin. And God is about to cast him out of his presence because Satan is accusing him. He deserves judgment. And what happens? God says, No, I've chosen you. God takes the pure vestments, he takes the defiled the, the vestments off the priests takes perfect, pure vestments, puts them on the priest, and now the priest with imputed righteousness, the credited righteousness, perfect righteousness that is not his own is placed on him. His sin is taken away. His righteousness is put on him, and now he can stand before God and the people and represent Israel with pure, spotless righteousness, and then we're told this is a sign of a future servant of God who's coming called the branch, and guess who that is? When the branch comes, the servant of the Lord, when he comes, he's going to take away all the sins of all the people in one day. And on this side of the cross, there is no doubt what day we are talking about. We're talking about Good Friday, when all of our filth and excrement, all the sin and defilement of your life was placed on another. And Jesus, our great high priest, absorbed the wrath of God for our sin on the cross, wearing our filthy garments. And when we trust in Christ, The perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus clothes us like Joshua in this scene, and Satan has no accusation he can make against you, Christian, even if you failed in the last 24 hours in some area of sin because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and there is no accusation that can stand against you. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. And these elements here represent these realities that Christ gave his body for us through the bread and he shed his blood for us through the cup. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, not walking in unrepentant sin, we would invite you to come forward, partake of these elements when I'm done praying and return to your seat. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not need these elements. You need the Lord Jesus himself. And I would ask you even now to pray that he would clothe you with his perfect righteousness in this very moment as Joshua experienced in this vision in Zechariah chapter three, and that he would save you once and for all. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, if we were to stand before you with the cumulative weight of all of our sin from all of our life, we would be crushed before you sins of commission, sins of omission. Lord, we cannot put a number on our sins. The older we are, the more sin we have. And Lord, if we were to appear before you, we would be covered in filthy garments. And we are beyond thankful that the accusation of Satan cannot be successfully made against your people, not because we are perfect, but because Jesus Is perfect and was perfect in our place that he died taking all the defilement of our sin onto himself on the cross that you made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him God it is hard to put a level of praise or gratitude on what you have done for us in Christ I pray now as we come forward humbled by your grace as we take of these elements, that we would have these physical, tangible reminders that we can touch and taste of your love for us, giving your Son body and blood for us on the cross. And I pray even now, God, that you would humble us, encourage us, and strengthen us for the week ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.